Welcome to season five, the final season of Been There, Done That, a pandemic survival podcast. In this show, we've been talking to some real life experts on how they've been getting through this time filled with unexpected changes, challenges, and still those darn feelings of helplessness. And those experts are everyday people like you and me. Turns out we have been more than prepared for this moment than we ever would have realized. So let's get started and see what we can relearn one last time. It is Monday, February 22nd, 2021. Interestingly enough, that's 22, 22, one. And today we are in our final interview with our friend LJ in New York. And so it's 2.45 p.m. Pacific, but in actuality, it is 545 Eastern. And so let's get into it. LJ, thank you for making the time, not just today, but this entire year long. And I was looking back at, at you know, some of the descriptions and thinking back to our conversations of the last year, and they have touched on virtually everything, but the one thing they have in common is power. And how do we exercise it? How do we see it? How do we transform it? How do we cultivate it? How do we harness it? Um, Our last conversation, we talked specifically about the elections and what is an election defender and what did the election defenders do? And we ended up surfacing this like really sort of, you know, um, prolific moment of like, how do you get from point A to point B? And we surface this idea of desire, like desire is this thing to like foster and, you know, continue to cultivate in order to continue to have, you know, power be something that you even want, right? You have to desire it first um, at some level. And so that was the most recent type of conversation that we were having. And so much has happened since then. Since the election ended, we then had uh, an insurrection, um, just trying to certify the election. And now we're at a point where we're rounding up, uh, finishing up the first 100 days of a new administration. And many of the promises are now starting to get backpedaled. And many of the things that we thought were going to automatically shift and change have not necessarily done so in the way that we expected, whether that's the rollout of vaccines or uh, wages going up to $15 or changes in immigration. Things um, are changing yet again. And so it's our last interview. And before I get into anything else, I would just like to know, how are you? How have the last two months been? And how does it feel to get to the moment of it already being a year since this all began and doesn't quite look like it's ending tomorrow? I think the last couple of months have been garbage. I, I... (laughs) Uh, yay. I mean, we won the general election. We won Georgia, which in my opinion was actually kind of, um, I don't know that just winning Georgia. I was like, damn, we won Georgia. Like that was a big deal. Um, it was, and it was overshadowed by the fact that there was an insurrection on the same day. I mean, I like, literally the day after we we won georgia georgia was on a tuesday wednesday i kind of like slept until 10 a.m and then i was like i'm gonna do a nice little self-care thing for myself and i'm gonna like borrow my friend's car so i can drive over to my dad's apartment and pick up this rug because my dad and his wife have bought new rugs and he's giving me his old rugs and i was like this is going to make me feel so good. I'm going to like bring this nice rug into my apartment. Like having not had two hours over the past six months to make time to do that. And then I get into the car and I'm on the BQE Brooklyn Queens expressway for those of you who don't know. And uh, then shit starts popping off on the radio and it was really like, wow, it was, it just felt like this, crushing blow. I mean, there's many things I could say about why the insurrection was a crushing blow, but uh, it was, I definitely had no 
uh, expectations that Biden would come into office and everything would be great. Biden ran on a platform of, I just want to bring us back to normal. And normal was already not working for lots of us. So, uh, you know, I feel like- I'm sorry. There, There was a word in his campaign that was about change. It was called better. <laughs> it was build back and you're forgetting i i think that you to your point yes but you're forgetting the the third massive transformational revolutionary word there which was better not good not no. great god not great just better let's just make normal a little bit better you know those democrats they're pragmatic they're you know realistic tenacious that's what everybody said about hillary She's tenacious and no one is moved into action by tenacity. It's a great quality to have, you know, but it'd be nice if there was some actual vision and spine and, you know, chutzpah, like kind of coming out from the Democrats. Anyway, I digress. The last couple of months have been garbage, I think. <laughs> so. I think the past couple of months have been garbage. I think that we had a, well, I'll, I'll say I statements because I'm trying to get my, um, my sweetie to use I statements more. So I'm trying to model them at all times. Um, Does your sweetie listen to this podcast? Because if no. not, I'm not really sure that the modeling is happening. Well, maybe just this episode. Okay. So um I felt like I had this outburst of joy around the November, well, November 7th, because that was when the results were announced. And then around Georgia, felt so ecstatic. And then there was not even a moment to like finish my celebratory beer with the coup. And I was never under the like, yeah, I just never was one of the people who were like, Biden's going to come into office. Everything is going to be great. But I think that what has no, felt so no. hard. Again, again, great was better. the last administration. Be better. Everything's going to be better. I'm getting distracted because then I went back and repeated the same thing. <laughs> this better concept is really distracting me. Um, do you have other guests who are more articulate? Like, do you have guests that don't tangent all over the place? No. Okay. Um, I feel like Biden, uh, I will say I felt like post-Georgia, post-election, I did feel like I took a really deep breath and I did pause for a second and I was like, you know, things might be a little bit more normal. Again, Normal is not what I'm out here fighting for, but a little bit more normality, I think, just on a daily basis. But wait a minute. Wait a minute, LJ. But I'm going to challenge you on this last part. Normal is not what I'm out here fighting for. Yeah. I want you to think about just the last four years. Just the last four years under the previous administration, the 45th administration under yeah. Trump. Wasn't that the whole problem with the last four years is that we really were trying to hold a line, at least hold a line of normal. And things got so slippery and yeah. abnormal and unjust that just having normal was what we were trying to hold on to the last four years. And so now I mean, once you start to slip away from the gains that you have made, I mean, can we really expect Biden to do more than better? Can we really expect, like, what do we expect right now of power building social justice organizers right now? Are they supposed to start from where we left off at the end of the Obama years and not even take into account all the things that we have to work for right now just to get some things back? And, and that's assuming that everything can be transformed and put back the way it was in some way, shape or form. I just don't, I think that our communities did better than just try to hold on to normal. And I think actually really getting 
big major American cities to pull money out of their police departments is not holding normal. That's like really significant, like visionary change. It's not the like we are completely taking down capitalism and white supremacy, but fucking a taking lots of money out of the police is really big. And so I know that across many different sectors of organizing that we were just trying to hold on to that baseline, but I also don't want to short, short change our communities. Cause I think even when people were telling them just hold on to the, just try to hold on to that baseline of normal, people were like, Mm-mm, we're going for more. So I think that a lot of organizers really did, um, you know, ed- like move things forward. Certainly, I think the summer uprising is absolutely, you know, uh, um, an example of that. So, yeah, I guess I just don't want to, I think that our people did better than just hold on to normal, you know? I mean, absolutely. I think the thing that really surfaced in the last four years was a reckoning in understanding that just holding on to normal is not going to be enough. And right. it never was. So that yeah. that's sort of like real come to Jesus moment of like what you're trying to hold on to yeah. wasn't really enough anyway. So what more yeah. do you really need? What systemic yeah. change do you really need? That was really important and powerful yeah. over the yeah. last four years. And then I think the other thing that is, is, you know, akin to that or in deep, you know, partnership and relationship to that is that, you know, we started to really then look at, well, if this isn't enough, if help isn't enough, if a Band-Aid isn't enough and it never has been, and now you've taken the Band-Aid away, let's really then start to look at what is the source of the harm? If we can no longer expect and, and assume that the help for the injury to heal is going to exist, then maybe what we need to really do is to find the source of the harm. And so we have these institutional, you know, uh, policy and beyond policy changes that we want. We went full scale. We want policy change. We want practice change. We want cultural change. We want it all because we were really starting to see, again, the sources of all of these things to the point where, yes, there was the call for defunding the police. There were actual cities that were able to to actually do that, to pull away uh, resources, to extract, to say, divest from this and instead invest in that. And also, just this last week, we had a push in the Trump years um, to defund the police in the Los Angeles Unified School District. Then it took the uprisings of this summer and a whole year of no one really being on school campuses to needing to, quote, be policed, that the students were now able to say, okay, not only a was it harmful? And we told you that before. We gave you data as to how the police were treating us and affecting our educational access. But And you said no. But now you've been paying for these police officers, this entire specialized police department to exist for the district for a whole year, and they haven't been needed. You want to talk about cost-saving money and divesting in what you need to invest in instead. It's us. And so these different things that happened in the last year not only helped us to understand what's the source of the harm and what's the solution to change that, but COVID also put this massive magnifying glass on everything that already existed so that you can't unsee it now. No one can say, well, I don't know what you're talking about. And what what I think I'm the most hurt by in many ways is that the solutions and the reasons for people to finally make such crucial power decisions has been about money. This has been about cost saving. This has been about moving the money. And the fact that money has been at the center of both the harm and the solution um, just makes me feel uncomfortable because it still isn't about people. It's just about the profits and saving. So two things, um, three things. First thing, yes, duh, money was absolutely the foundation of the problem. And also, um, yes, obviously our government just literally looks at us and sees us as dollar figures and like some bigger people are the bigger dollar 
figures and other people are just like little sense. Like uh, the whole thing has been, an, uh, I mean, there's a lot I could say about that in terms of how Cuomo has handled indoor dining and restaurants in New York City. And instead of actually providing restaurant workers with relief, he has chosen to open restaurants despite public right. health officials saying, this is not the move right now. This is right. really not the move. And he's been like, but it's New York and we're New York tough and we need to get the money flowing. And actually you could flow some money. It just needs to like go to work or relief rather than like to, you know, restaurants opening. So, um, so I wanted, but there were two other things I wanted to say. The um, a thing that I thought was very noteworthy was last week or over this weekend, in the coverage for CBS and, and NBC, I don't have a TV, so I saw this online, but there was coverage about Texas and the storm in Texas. Um, and what happens when you choose to build a border wall instead of a grid. And um, in CBS and NBC, both articles had, you know, do you wanna help people in Texas donate here? and the link that they provided was not the American Red Cross. It was South Texas Mutual Aid, East Texas Mutual Aid, Austin Mutual Aid, whatever. And then six lines down after animal shelters was, oh, and also you can donate to the American Red Cross if you want. Um, but that to me felt like, you know, I do, like you, feel like I'm constantly looking for the little glimpses of cultural shift that might not translate into material changes just yet. But yeah. I feel like when mainstream outlets are uplifting the mutual aid networks as the number one place to donate, if you feel like you wanna help people in Texas, that is like a, an actually a backdoor fuck you to the NGOs, the big NGOs yeah. and the government and FEMA and is like yeah. some kind of, if not that, then at least a tacit acknowledgement of if you get money to neighbors, they can help their other neighbors. And so mm -hmm. that actually I thought was, you know, yes, it's hard. That doesn't translate necessary into like, it doesn't help people not freeze, but actually it might um, because you're giving money not to the American Red Cross who's going to spend it on, you know, insulated saran wrap to make tents, but you're actually like getting it to people who know how to move things very quickly. And um, so that made me really excited. Mm -hmm. um, and actually, I will just say briefly that when I was thinking just a few minutes before we started talking about what I would put in a time capsule of this year, I would mm -hmm. put hand sanitizer, but not Purell, I would put hand sanitizer that was made by the mutual aid networks because hospitals were like, we have no hand sanitizer. And a lot of young people, including young people who I feel like the media was also saying, these are Antifa, were like, no problem hospital workers, we got you. We're about to pump out 200,000 gallons of hand sanitizer for you in two weeks. Those Portland hand sanitizer people killed it. So the mutual aid networks, I feel like actually the fact that people even are using the phrase mutual aid to me is a cultural marker of some kind of very slow movement, even if it's just hypothetical, like that gets people to realize that the government is not the one who has the answers. So... That was what I wanted to say about the mutual aid networks. And there was one other thing I wanted to say about money, which is in New York City, uh, anybody can get a rapid COVID test for free if you have insurance or don't have insurance. The PCR tests are now, if you have insurance, they're now asking you about insurance or not insurance. But in terms of getting a rapid response COVID test, anybody in New York City can get it for free. They, you don't have to be a citizen. You don't have to have health care. Uh, it is the kind of stuff, actually, that we that when we think about our like dream version of health care, it includes mm -hmm. things like this. 
mm-hmm. as does the vaccine. And I have to give it up to sometimes New York does things well. And all of the public literature about the vaccine is in 16 different languages. And yes. it's very specifically addressed to New Yorkers. Hey, New Yorkers, are you on a vaccine? You know, hola, New Yorkers, blah, 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 blah. Like it is, it is um, very specifically does not, you know, like regardless of status, regardless, you know, and the thing that is going, going to really break my heart, I anticipate, is that this should be a moment that galvanizes people around fighting for healthcare that they have been benefiting from this year, um, that we will not, that things will change, things will go back, and that you will continue to have your like $5,000, $10,000 deductible and paying all, of, even if you have healthcare, paying all of your treatments, all of your things out of pocket, like we will, you know, that will dominate as it continues to have in this momentary like blip on the radar where things were free and accessible and felt like Canada will cease to exist. And I hope that that gives people pause around like, because this is the, the tangible experience of another world that we have wanted people to experience. Like it is actually quite remarkable. There has been no other moment in my lifetime where there are city run places with public funding, with nurses who are the coolest motherfuckers and are like playing Michael Jackson and are in a great mood despite working 18 hour days and are like swabbing you and you get your results back way more efficiently, by the way, than the private clinic. Cause my sweetie goes to the private clinic cause it's right by his house. And that shit takes a week and the public one get, comes back in like 24 hours. And we've had this amazing experience of free public healthcare, not on everything, not on cancer treatments, not on a bunch of other things, but on this one very specific slice of health, we have had this experience and I very, I, I, um, it should be a lightning, a, a, a light bulb moment of like, wow, isn't this really cool actually to be able to have like regular access to healthcare that is free in public? I mean, I, this isn't the first time and it isn't the only thing. I mean, right now there's some public funding that goes to certain, you know, um, community healthcare spaces, including various different Planned Parenthood spaces. You can get an HIV test uh, for free. Um, You can get condoms. Um, dental damps and, and um, there's some needle exchange places um, for free, right? In terms of other pandemics, other health issues where things are free and accessible. Um, and then let's not forget that the polio vaccine um, was not owned and patented by a pharmaceutical company like Moderna or Pfizer or Johnson and Johnson. It was created by a scientist who was Jewish, who then decided that this should belong to the people and made it a public patent so that factories across the country and across the world could make it without having to worry about manufacturing a, um, you know, medicine that is patent protected and they're not allowed to own the rights to that, you know, ingredients right. list, if you will. Right. So it's been here before. It's right. around. But to not your point, let's scale. not. Maybe not. Absolutely. And not in our lifetime. And I think, I think that these are definitely important things to note. And I think that what's usually hard is to hold on to the things that you are given sometimes is just as hard as fighting for the things that got taken back. Like I remember during September 11th, we, you know, we said uh, some of us with consent, most of us without our safety is more important than our, you know, person. So sure, I won't bring in my water. Sure, you can pat me down. Sure, you can x-ray my entire body and all of its parts. Sure, you can continue to do these things like not give me food 
on my flight. And right now we have more take backs because of the transference of COVID-19. Now there's no drinks um, in many different flights, right? When will we ever get these things back? I don't know. It's been a minute since September 11th and they still don't give you free food unless it's an international flight and not all international flights either. We all know about those fun ones where basically you have to pay for the seat uh, on top of the seat belt, on top of the napkin on top of any access to the restroom, but your flight's $15. So, you know, there's, there's <laughs> no, I was actually talking about, what is it? Naviant or, or elegant or allegiant. Oh, allegi- or, allegiance. Uh, yeah, there it is. But so, no, is, is, you know, middle tier. So many times and they just won't let me go. <laughs> but, but so the point is that like, I, I guess what I want to ask you is, you're a direct action organizer. You actually do like also with ruckus society experience and other things like some pretty intense actions. And so I want to talk about how do you keep a door open? How do you open a door or a window and how do you keep it open so that more folks can keep coming in? Because that's what we're essentially talking about. How do you take access to healthcare? Like what is being, you know, afforded to us at this moment in terms of testing, rapid testing and vaccines and the access across different languages and times and spaces with COVID-19. How do you take that sliver in the door that maybe is built on the sliver from HIV testing and access to condoms and needle exchange that might be built on top of polio as a, as a vaccine that's owned by the people? How do we continue to open that door so that it isn't a door anymore? It's just an archway. Um, a couple thoughts. First, that I did not want to erase the work of queer organizers to get that public funding to health clinics and HIV testing. But my, I do want for, for people listening in, the scale at which things are available in New York City is every, every mile, so which is 20 blocks, there is a testing site and there's a vaccine site. It's just actually like, and it feels actually rather apocalyptic because we're like, like it's weird to see tented medical stations everywhere. Like, but also um, it's just, it is just very interesting. In terms of leaving a door open, I think that, um, I don't know. I would just kind of like, there are people that the pandemic actually really didn't change their life that much in the way that there are people that Trump didn't actually change their life that much. There are people that the pandemic, like when Trump came into office, just started profiting even more than they already were. And then I feel like there are those who are, were, um, are directly impacted and also then the most directly impacted in the pandemic. And then there's this kind of like, I don't know, this like middle ground of people. And I'm thinking about um, like my neighbors who would never have described themselves as activists or organizers. And also were like, okay, uh, I heard about this thing called like a tenants association. Like, what is that? Uh, and then like Googled how to make a tenants, how to form a tenants association in your building and um, started, we're like, what is this wrench strike thing people are talking about? Like, so what is this power that people are talking what about? What is this thing? What's this power thing? So, um, so people, it has been an extraordinary year of political education. I think the fact it's in many different ways in terms of how uh, healthcare works, in terms of people giving so much of a shit about congressional races, um, about people understanding like how decisions get made that impact them, about political education around stimulus checks, and unemployment and um, who gets those things. I'm working with the unemployed uh, and exclude, not unemployed, I'm sorry, the excluded workers coalition right now. And this is delivery workers, laundry workers, domestic workers, uh, sex workers, people who have gone over 300 days with zero COVID relief because they can't file for unemployment and therefore are not eligible for COVID relief. So have gone, 
essentially an entire year with zero COVID relief. Um, so, but also people are now actually aware that there are like, I just think it has been an amazing year of political education and also political education isn't enough unless obviously you know this yourself as a trainer and educator that like education is a key component and also needs to be followed up by action. So in terms of like the, the arches or the doorways, you know, I think that looks like many different things. Like there is like a movement right now to get refrigerators out on the streets that just say free fridge. So um, there are already like, I would say maybe 20 up in Brooklyn. We're getting one outside May Day in a couple weeks. Um, that um, will is exactly what it sounds like is a refrigerator that has food in it for anybody to take. Um, and so I think that there are um, small scale neighborhood projects um, particularly on the mutual aid tip, because regardless of the vaccine, regardless of, you know, like the, whether there's an end in sight, things are, I mean, the variant, it was just announced today, the South African variant is in New York City. So, you know, vaccine or not, people, your neighbors need help filling their prescriptions. So the mutual aid networks actually that are like, have their list of like, here are the elders in my building or here are the people who have mobility access needs. Like, these are the people that like, I can go to the, the pharmacy for so that they don't have to. Um, these are the people that I can do grocery runs for, you know? Like, I think that there's, um, uh, I think that people are like in a point of really wanting to understand how government affects them and also wanting to know their neighbors more. Um, you know, and I think obviously also that stuff, um, uh, you know, it is generally middle-class people who I feel like are not in, in close relationship with their neighbors, especially those who might be gentrifying a neighborhood in which they are not from, right? Many other communities have always had a practice of knowing their neighbors. So I'm making something of a generalization here. Um, but I do think that like, uh, you know, the interdependency, the like visceral understanding of interdependency, I'm hopeful, I think is like more felt and also I think that for people of all sectors, um, uh, there is like a much deeper like awareness of how the powers that be work, which is the circle back to your actual question or, or like comment around money and that this has all been about money. And, you know, I think when the government says, we'll think about giving you a $1,400 stimulus check to cover all your costs, that that has been really galvanizing to people. And I think also has pushed people to kind of want to understand how these things happen and what our supposed representatives are doing to supposedly represent us. I mean, I really appreciate your your breakdown and and surfacing how important the last few years but the last few months have been in particular at really being an incredible moment of you know popular and political education about how things work but mostly how power is working and who it's working for and it has been a lesson I feel like, you know, we've talked about before on this podcast, an early noticing, like within the first few months, I was looking around and, and thinking to myself and listening to folks on the podcast with their information they were sharing from across the country, that this is really important in terms of proximity. There's mm -hmm. like a few, a few words here that start with P that are super important in reflection of the last year, power and proximity, right? Like and proximity. Pandemic. Right. The three P's pandemic, 
that we had a pandemic. It taught us about proximity and it definitely was a lesson in power. You just sounded right? so Jewish right there. <laughs> <laughs> but, but the idea. It's a pandemic. That, okay, go ahead. Okay. Thank you. Uh, the, the idea being that, you know, this pandemic is so, so wrapped up in the idea of proximity because it is both the solution and the problem, you know, like the fact that we are not close to our neighbors, that we are not close to other countries, that we are not close to, you know, understanding and listening to our own bodies, right? These are the things that had to shift and change because no one was coming to help us, you know, like to the earlier phrases that have been be become popularized over the last few years, like we are the people we've been waiting for, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, like, we can save ourselves. We save ourselves. Like we save each other. We don't wait for the government to do it. And yet also holding government accountable to do what yeah. it's supposed to do, which is also that, but also knowing that in order to hold, you know, politicians and government agencies accountable, the people have to make sure that they're exercising their power on a regular basis, either with yeah. phone calls or, you know, with boots on the yeah. ground, so to speak, or, you know, with that moment of voting and changing who is your representative. And so I think what's interesting, though, is that also to proximity, staying six feet apart, that when we get sick, we're alone in these hospitals and no one can be around you, you know, like proximity has also been the distance that keeps us safe, but also, you know, the closer you are, maybe the more dangerous you are, but also maybe the more helpful you can be. Proximity has been at play here the whole time. But what I'm trying to get at is that proximity to the issue is also what has forced you or not forced you to understand and learn about the levers and how the system works, mm -hmm. right? So the closer you are to the harm, the more you're like, I got to figure this out. This yeah. keeps happening to me. I am yeah. in trouble right now. I have to figure out how this is working and how I keep getting caught up in this and how I need to change this or what agency and what power I can leverage and harness in order to make this systemic change. But the further away you are, the less proximity you have to the harm to your point not everybody has been affected by trump not everybody has been affected by the pandemic the further away you are the less you have to care yeah. investigate or be educated on these things yeah. because it it's not hurting you it's like yeah. our, our our refrigerator broke we don't have a lot of money I don't have a lot of money, nor do I have a lot of safety to let a repair person come into my house right now yeah. and potentially bring in the pandemic. Right. And so what did I do? I found the manual to the refrigerator. I went online to this new thing that everybody uses now when you want to learn how to braid your hair or fix your refrigerator, apparently, and it's called YouTube. And I looked up a lot of videos and I looked up some great people who did know what they were doing, telling me what to do. And you know what I was able to do? fix my damn refrigerator myself. Why? Because I know how to do that? No, but because the urgency and the power that I had to slow down during this pandemic, not be working at the same pace and be able to find this out. And I also speak English. These videos were in English. I'm technically savvy. I can look up these things on the internet, but you know, out of necessity and force that I have to learn how this power works. And it's the same thing with your neighbors who were never organizers, right? It's necessity now to figure out where does the power lie and how can I, you know, harness it and create it for myself in order to get out of the situation where the proximity to harm will always be with me. What is the proximity to power? What is the proximity to empowerment? What is the proximity to systemic change? And I think that those are the compounded, you know, intersectional lessons that have happened during this time. And, you know, I hope that these are the things that we don't lose. I hope these are the things that just become muscle memory to, to our, our lives at this time. Because I think one of the biggest lessons that came out of the Trump administration winning was, oh my God, that's possible oh my gosh, there are people who actually want that. Yeah, And I think that that has been a great awakening for us that yes, it was possible and it's always been possible and it's yeah. possible for it to happen again. You know, social justice isn't a, je a destination, it's a practice yeah. and we can't ever give up on it. It is a lifestyle change. Yeah. If, you, if you are not practicing right now, get ready for it, do the hard work to get there and then it's maintenance, but it's never not maintenance. Um, and I think that that is, that is super important. And I really appreciate you lifting that up. Does that include your own personal 
experience, like that, that breakdown on like mutual aid and like how important and significant that is, is huge. And I, and I love it. You were super involved early on um, talking to us on the podcast about mutual aid, but are you still doing that now? Or is your mutual aid looking different? And what's the role of mutual aid? The mutual aid project that we did at Mayday was in partnership with another organization called Universe City. Um, and actually a lot of other organizations, but, um, the numbers that I, that, um, Sandy, who was kind of the brains and brawn behind the whole project, um, gave us is that Mayday, the component that Mayday held down distributed 300,000 pounds of food and that the project as a whole, including Mayday did 2.2 million pounds of food. Um, which is a lot of food. And also I would like to go on record, <laughs> I'd like to go on record saying also that that food was fresh veg, fresh fruit, milk, eggs, rice, beans. Um, uh, so in other words, it wasn't 2 million pounds of Whoppers yeah, and yeah. fries exactly. and high C. Yeah. Got it. So, yeah. um, uh, or... 2.2 million pounds of what the Red Cross hands out as like, you know, um, what are they called in the military? The um, MREs, the ready, the meals ready to eat, the MREs. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Anyway, the Red Cross distributes MREs, which are made for the, the military. Quick side note about MREs, they're made for the military. So the composition of them nutritionally are basically like designed as if you are in the mountains of Afghanistan marching all around. And this is the one thing you have to eat for 48 hours. So it is like super caloric heavy, super sodium heavy so that you retain all your water. Like it's not a healthy thing to eat, let alone the fact that it's vacuum packed and weird. Right. The MREs actually though are are not meant for like normal human consumption. They are meant for like, you know, I am anyway, you get what I'm saying. Um, that yes, wasn't we're talking about, we're talking about one solution does not meet all the different problems yes. needs. We need specialized solutions. That is indeed what we're talking about. So, um, but the thing, how did I get here? Oh, so the mutual aid right now where that food distribution mutual aid is at. So Mayday is doing a small 150 family, like super local within the, within our immediate few blocks of us food distro on the weekends. I'm not currently involved, but Patsy from the Mayday, Mayday collective is, is, um, spearheading that, um, the, the big mutual aid project, the $2.2 million thing is on hold right now because it has operating costs. The food is donated and the, the 501c3 nonprofit organization who's very run, like very respectable, big time mainstream organization for to, gives us the recovered food. However, there's a lot of costs that go into that. We need trucks to deliver it. We need a forklift actually, because that's the qu quantity of food that's being delivered. So right. there are operating costs, not to mention just the bags that are needed. Like it's cold storage, like there's operating costs that go along with it. And so that project is on hold right now because it costs about that mutual aid project went from like the city, city harvest. People were like, y'all are doing this infinitely more effectively than we ever could. Um, but to move, you know, to be feeding thousands of families every week, um, it's not just about the labor, but also is there's material needs around it. And also, I think that there has been actually a, a push, this is kind of interesting given the conversation on mutual aid, but that there has been a push from some folks about being like the level that we are operating at deserve city money because we are doing the work that you are supposed to be doing. We are feeding your constituents. So Universe City, who has been the, who has held this whole 2 million pound food project 
had just applied for city funding from city council members and the senators and stuff to be like, we feed your constituents, you are supposed to be doing this. So you should be giving us discretionary funding. So it goes back actually to what you were just saying about the kind of inside outside game of like, we are the ones that we've been waiting for, but also we need to continue to put pressure on electeds to do their job. Like it is not like we are not trying to so radically divest all of our energy from that and just put it into solutions building because as beautiful and lovely as that might be, then who's actually putting the pressure on those in power um, to do anything. So I mean, we're talking, we're we're talking about, you know, in a, in a hospital situation, when you go uh, when you need medical care, there's different levels, right? There's the emergency room versus urgent care versus an actual appointment. Yeah. And so we're talking about yeah. the different kinds of goals yeah, that analogy. are needed to make this change. There is the there's the immediate immediate yeah. short term, you know, goal of feed people right now who are yeah. starving. And then there's the intermediate goal, yeah. which is how can we prevent people from lacking any yeah. food? And then the long term goal, which is how can we just make food available for folks all the time? And it reminds me of what we saw just this last week in Texas, where, you know, we have these different um, human made Uh, unnatural disasters happen with fires or flooding or hurricanes, tornadoes, and in this case, a freezing storm with snow and weather conditions and temperatures that were not expected and not the norm uh, for this region and this area of the country. And we, in these times, will have this comparative narrative that comes out depending on the neighborhood you're in. Are these looters? Are these people seeking and finding what they need to survive? Are these survivors or are these looters and thieves, right? And then there's a, a racial component to that. And it's based on the neighborhood and all yeah. of these different ways in which people respond. So what happened that's significantly different in Texas? Well, what happened significantly different in Texas is that some major grocery stores said the doors are open, the electricity is out, the water is out, y'all need food and supplies, we have it, take what you need. We have been told by corporate headquarters, take what you need. None of you is looters. None of you are thieves. All of you are just trying to survive. And so we're not even gonna play into this narrative and say our doors are closed because this is about our profit. But it's also, hey, we're gonna lose actually all these materials. This food in here, it's gonna go bad. It's gonna smell rotten. And we we could have helped people and we didn't. So this is a threefer, not even a twofer. You know, like we are saying, we're gonna look good. We're gonna do good and we're gonna help you. And it just so happens that when we don't think of ourselves, and we think of ourselves. When we think of us and you, all the solutions come into play. Mutual self-interest. Yeah, I believe it's called mutual aid. And so one of the things that's super interesting is like, why isn't that happening in New York? If the issue is, you know, the operational costs, then why isn't all of this food going to places that people are already used to going and getting food yeah. from? You know, but then that comes back to the proximity and the danger of proximity, the danger of proximity to each other right now and going indoors to places that might not have the best ventilation on and on. But you said the last two months reminded you or that it just was garbage. And it turns out, as we've been talking, that we're doing some dumpster diving or finding that one person's trash is actually potentially someone else's gold. So I I don't know. I don't know that it's a bad thing that the last two months were quote garbage. Yeah, no, I appreciate, I appreciate that reframe. Um, And I think always every day, as much as I'm kind of like, you know, everything sucks right now. Like I am, I feel like every day finding some ability to pivot and change my narrative glasses and uh, reframe the garbage into something that even as I get really mad at people who are uh, willy-nilly going to see their friends, I also am like with a different pair of narrative glasses on, what that is about is just about like the power of friendship and how much community is essential to like surviving and how much people actually just like really miss being with their people 
So um, I do feel like that there's a, that I'm able to like take off the garbage glasses for a little bit each day and like see the, uh, like see an underlying truth there that is in line with the vision of the world as we see it. And I'm also like, visit your friends. So, right. Well, I mean, I think that speaks to something that we also know, which is that life isn't about just one thing. Like we can hold both. We can hold that this, the last two months have been garbage and have also created some really awesome repurposed materials that now we get to make from some of those things that we've recycled or upcycled that any other time would just be seen only as garbage. And so I guess I, I, I'm really uh, struck and excited about how in your time capsule of sorts for the last year, you're like big sort of like object that speaks to this moment in our conversation is a, you know, um, mutual aid, not corporate made um, hand sanitizer, right? We saw that a bunch with the with the mutual aid handmade masks that were made um, and continue to be made and sold and given away and shared because, you know, they're still in conversation right now. They're just, they're still in conversation, LJ, about whether or not the government should mail us all masks in the mail. A year later, a year later, you want to mail people, me a mask. Do people listening know that though, by the way, that like when the pandemic happened, there was a plan to mail everybody in the country masks and Trump said no? No, I don't think so. I just- I don't think- like, Yeah. I just, I don't think, I think just barely now it's coming out. Like barely, all the yeah. things that weren't there and all the things that were like, no, we don't need it. No, we don't need masks. No, we don't need to come up with a dissemination plan to the vaccine. No, we don't need to actually pretend this is real and name it by sending people masks because you're essentially sending people in the mail. When you send them a mask, you're also sending them a notification that like, yeah, it's real. And it is as bad as you've heard it has been for the last year. And so my last question to you then, LJ, for all of this really is we started the, the podcast asking all of the participants, does this time at all of uncertainty and potential like, oh gosh, there went my hope and I'm feeling helpless. And all of these moments of like, I don't know how long this is going to last. Are people going to die? Like what's happening? Am I safe? Like we asked everyone, does this time, the beginning of it, remind you of any other time in your life? And people shared a variety of different things based on your geographic location, based on your age, based on your proximity to potential harm like this repeatedly. And so now we have finished the first year. A year has gone by. We have learned many ways to get through this moment. And so I want you to imagine that this is also a time capsule where you get to leave a message to your future self and future people and individuals like you who know you who maybe even descend from you someday and want to know how you got through this moment and again for yourself to remember how you got through this moment these lessons that sometimes we forget unless we are strategically and by design asked to recall them and note them so what advice would you give to your future self about how to get through the next challenging moment that is familiar to what this has felt like? The way that I got through the pandemic was... And not that it's over, but how did you get through no, no, the no, first no. year? I know, but if I could cite like one thing it would be that I was like, I need to do something like that. There was a day, well, there was, there was a week that I was like, oh, I need to make flyers and put them everywhere in my neighborhood. And it was like, and I don't know how to do any of that designy stuff. So it was like the most lame clip art 
kind of thing. Actually, I shouldn't say that because my sweetie made the clip art thing. But anyway, it was like this clip art thing. And, and it was just like, do you need help? And then it was bilingual English, Spanish. And it was just like, hi, I'm LJ. I live on Washington Ave. Do you need something? Do you need someone to go pick up your prescriptions? Do you need somebody to bring you groceries? Let me know. And I like played matchmaker. And just like, cause people would be like, hi, I need somebody to go to the grocery store for me. And somebody else would write, Hey, I want to volunteer. And I was like, you know, just being a matchmaker. And, but that was like the first thing where I was like, I can't like sit here and watch the news anymore. And like the whole, it was like right about the time also that the narrative of like, this is the time to learn that language you always wanted to, or like make this your artist residency. And, Go deep with yourself. And I was like, mm, no. And you know what? I like didn't read like one book all of last year. So um, that whole reading list I made just didn't come to fruition. But there are many reasons that I was able to do things in terms of having the like health privilege to be able to be out in the world and, and, and that kind of thing. And, and also my sweetie was working in the hospital. And so he was able, I got like a, a good mask at a time that other, that masks weren't available. So, um, so there were a lot of reasons why I was able to do that, but that is a long winded way of saying that I think trauma is directly related to how powerless you feel in that experience. Um, and the just doing something like just the putting up of flyers, like felt like, so where I was like, okay, I'm gonna like get through this. Um, and not let it like completely crush me and the mutual aid stuff you know was hard and stressful and also like really hurt our bodies like 100 pound bags of carrots over and over again is was hard um were and it was hard carrots? for us no they were the full-on gnarly Oof. as nature made them carrots but yeah um anyway it was like you know, it was hard. All this stuff was, was hard. So, uh, I'm, I'm digressing. I'm very, I'm being a tangential person again. I just taking action, no matter how small I think is always medicine that in the face of the tidal wave of, um, you know, health crisis. And I keep this whole year, I have used the like the term, the trifecta of public health crises, white supremacy, climate change, and the pandemic, like that, that is the holy trinity of public health crisis that we are facing right now. Um, and in the face of that, and feeling so powerless, I just feel like any small action, actually, I feel like is real medicine because it reminds you that you are not powerless it reminds you that you are in community uh and it reminds you actually that like no one's coming to save us literally no one is coming to save us so we are the ones that we got and um you know I just felt like this you know after hurricane sandy a lot of us had conversations about and the whole prepper bag thing came into like mainstream dialogue where a lot of us had conversations like about how to re reframe that as like your ability to survive a natural disaster like this, like a hurricane has very little to do what, with what's in your go bag and has everything to do with how much you know your neighbors. And I think actually this was a time that people, um, that I think no, checking in on your neighbors, like just the most basic actions, I think felt like the, the vaccine. So, um, and also- I, mean, I, I was gonna say that, yes, go ahead. Go ahead, no, you go ahead, no, my please. Love. Go ahead. No, go ahead. The last thing I was gonna say, 
quite quickly because I know that I mentioned it on another podcast at another your podcast not that I like go on it's lots okay. of podcasts it's all right so um is that I felt like this moment had the potential to really um like uh redefine our relationship with land and the outdoors and that people being inside all day all of a sudden made people who never ever would have said in their lifetime, oh, I like the outdoors because this is New York City. Um, all of a sudden made people be like, oh my God, yes, outdoors, I love it. And I do think that like the never underestimating the like healing power of spending time in nature um, is another, I feel like, um, going forward is like one thing that I'm taking. I mean, I definitely feel like there are a few folks on this podcast, yourself definitely being one of them where mutual aid has been really at the center of this last year and mutual aid as a power building, you know, moment, like you can't just get people out to vote. It's also about, do you need toilet paper? Do you need water? Do you have, you know, money for electricity? Like it's all of those things, literal and political power, like power is power. Like how do we continue to cultivate that and share that? And also this idea that like, you feel better by helping others. Like <laughs> mutual aid yeah. has two words. It isn't just the yeah. aid, it's the mutual part. There has to be a, a reciprocity. There has to be a relationship yeah. It. You help yeah. me by me helping you and vice versa. Like I'm helping people. And so my sweetie gets me uh, a mask from the hospital that I wouldn't otherwise get. You wouldn't have otherwise gotten that mask if you weren't doing something by using that's that right. mask. Right. And yeah, so I think right. that interconnectivity is super important. Um, and I also think that when we're talking about, to your point, this like emergency preparedness kit, like how do we prepare for a moment like this, not how, how do we remember how we got through this moment? How do we actually prepare for the future moments? It's also about creating that preparedness kit, but that kit aren't items in that kit or not individual, you know, like yeah. wrapped things in that kit is get to know your neighbors. You want to know how you're going to survive, know your neighbors, know their names, yeah. know how to communicate with them and know what they need and let them know who you are, how to communicate with yeah. you and what that relationship is like. And to that point, if it's about relationships, if how we survive moments like this and be prepared for these moments is relationships, then that is definitely inclusive of the relationship that we have to the earth and to the planet and yeah. to the land, because that is a relationship that yeah. has been trying to communicate with us for years that we yeah. have been we have been the proponents of the abuse in that relationship, yeah. that we have been abusive to the land, we have been abusive to the earth, and that it is still here willing, willing to forgive us and yeah. willing to provide that mutual aid as long as we can commit to the first part, which is that it's mutual. Yeah. And so I guess that's how you actually answered my question too, about how do you keep the door open more to make it an archway? You just keep getting more people involved and telling them, oh, by the way, this isn't a door anymore. This is an archway. This isn't a door anymore. This is an archway. And all of us standing here can take down the wall and can make sure that this wall that is really a door is no longer there anymore. And we're able to do that in relationship and in close proximity to one another and knowing what one another needs. Yeah. Thank you so much for Thank the year. You. And for the hour and for the time. And um, and thank you for helping me, I guess, unbeknownst to me until this exact moment. Thank you for helping me put together my emergency preparedness kit by continuing to foster relationships with people like you, even though you're on the other side of the country. I think there's also something to getting to know your neighbors in geographic location but also your neighbors in the kinds of work that you want to do and the kinds of values that you hold and have mm -hmm. close as well. So thank you for being my neighbor from afar. Um, thank you for being a major, um, uh, thank you for being an archway for me in this, in this time. And actually even this podcast thing, um, 
it actually is kind of a mutual aid in that it like, I wouldn't have sat down and written any of this stuff out. Um, and you were making this also to kind of process the moment. And it, sure. it created the invitation for me to process the moment when I wouldn't have otherwise. And the thing that I kind of like um, likened it to was that uh, when my dad was, uh, my dad was in Okinawa for three years uh, doing anti-war stuff in the seventies. And he wrote letters home to his friend. And at the end, after he had come home after three years in Okinawa, his friend gave him a binder of all of the letters that he had written, not as a like, I didn't like your letters, but as a, like, you should have this <laughs> testimony of like your time there. And you probably didn't have time to journal. And this is like the only written account of your experience. And so he gave the letters back and I was like, that's actually so cool. Um, and so that is, so that's how I have described this to my dad and other people where I was like, that's what it's like, is that Felicia gave me this opportunity that I wouldn't have had otherwise to process this as well as also just to like deepen our relationship. And you and I actually saw each other more during the pandemic than we would have had we not. It's true. <laughs> Yes, on Zoom. Yes. I mean, I saw your shoulder more. Yes. <laughs> yes. I'm you so intimately long. know my shoulders and my face. You have no idea how long my toenails have gotten or or oh how God, short, so how short my legs, how short my legs have gotten. They've like shrunk over time, I think, or something. But yes, yes. And, and that is exactly why this podcast started. I couldn't leave my house. I couldn't go get groceries for my neighbors. I couldn't offer that to the people who I love and care about the most. I couldn't offer that for you living in New York. And yeah. so what do you do when you want to provide mutual aid and you're completely physically limited from yeah. being able to do that or financially limited from being able to contribute to that? You know, like, again, mutual aid, that aid part, now that we've really wrapped up the mutual part, the aid part doesn't have to be food or just money-based. It could be any part of your time. So even just, you know, going outside and if you see your neighbor asking them how they, how they are and asking them if they need anything or you yeah. bake a bunch of cookies and you just go drop them off at your neighbor's house, People may not think of it as such, but people listening, like, just so you know, that's mutual aid. Like, yeah. not any. You've been listening to Been There, Done That, your pandemic survival podcast, sponsored by the New Economy Coalition, a membership-based network representing the solidarity economy movement in the United States. Visit NEC at neweconomy.net. Until next time, I'm your host, Felicia Perez. Stay well and stay human.